so we are uh, late this week. Yeah. So we're gonna do we're gonna do one show for two weeks. We're just gonna do an extra long show this week because it's all kinds of crazy. My yeah. daughter's starting kindergarten, mm. and you're cutting a movie, oh. and it's how's that going, by the way? Oh, just you know what? It's the whole point. It's the whole reason, isn't it? You it know? is, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. the whole reason for everything. Yeah, uh, but it's a lot of fun. Very funny. This is what th- this is why I know it's working. My mother, whom of course you know, yeah. Uh, my mother said, "You know, Tim, that was really funny." <laughs> if my mother thought it was funny, nice. my mother hates everything. Yeah, just absolutely like Mikey from the Life commercials, can't stand anything. <laughs> and she's like, "Okay, you know what? This is funny. This is really, really funny." And, That's and great. when my mother gets happy, I get happy. Uh, so yeah, it's going really well. Fantastic. And and what a week it has been. So we oh, we hey. lost we lost Aretha. Uh, and then uh, Boots Riley attacked Spike Lee yeah. with a big, a long letter. Uh, Aja Argento gets uh, accused by a former uh, young man, young man that Alan, she di- yeah. that she directed. Yeah, I interviewed both of them uh, during the press junket for that movie. My, my wife worked on that movie. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she never, did, you know, she she interfaced with the producer. What she was yeah. doing was, you know, uh, financial stuff. But uh, anyway, and people she, don't know that movie. Uh, the heart is a deceitful. The hardest deceitful above all things, uh, yeah. which is a sort of quasi—it's it, uh, adapted from a, uh, but it's also sort of—and yeah. there's a lot of uh, Aja Argento stuff in that movie. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting sort of thing. I got to dig up that interview. And of course, and then she came and she said, "No, look, I was, it was a shakedown, and uh, Anthony Bourdain. Now he gets dragged back into this yeah. posthumously." You know, it's like this is crazy news, and uh, and then uh, Crazy Rich Asians does uh, nutty All business at the box movies. office. Not does better than the Mark Wahlberg film, obviously better than the Kevin Spacey film. But well, that's you, you know, it's interesting. It does better than both, but then again, it is better than both. Yeah. It, it, so yes, Crazy Rich and the Asian thing and all of that. But I do want to point out that it's a better movie. Yeah. It, you know, so this isn't just a whole bunch of well, Asian people, this is, you know, overhyping one movie. This is a movie that's better than all the other movies. It's you know, I have said for a long time, and I will continue to say that that when people kind of focus on the issue of diversity, what they're what they're missing is this fact. Talent is diverse. Yes. If you're just following the talent, diversity will inevitably be a part of it. You, you know, the, the idea that somehow we need to focus on diversity because, no, the, the problem is not that you're not hiring enough, you know, people of other backgrounds and beliefs and whatnot. The problem is you're not chasing the talent. Yes. You're and, not going and, where and the talent takes there, you. There's simply, and, and there's simply a matter of a belief system. And the whole, you know, well, it's a belief of system regarding all kinds of things, it's not fear, just Hollywood. It's fear-driven. You know? It's fear-driven. Uh, but in Hollywood, there was a, a belief system that was all of the talent resided in a specific place. Yes. And that was always not. Never, mm-hmm. That was never true. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we came, okay, you know, maybe, well, maybe there's some talent over here. Okay, yeah. so then that gets better. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we are only now approaching the place where Hollywood, writ large, is like, okay, the talent is everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the money, which is, by the way, saying the money yep. is everywhere. So let's go get the talent and the money from everywhere, <laughs> right. from yeah. everywhere. And then, uh, you know, everybody is serviced in terms of the audience, for one thing. All audiences are serviced. And by the way, those audiences aren't uh, – It's I love crazy rich Asians. Yeah. Middle-aged brother from St. Louis, love crazy rich Asians. <laughs> so, you know – and by the way, I did not see that movie um, for the show or for mm-hmm. – I, I so I, didn't, I missed it in, the, uh, in, in our little press thing. Yep. So what do I do? I want to buy a ticket. Went up the street, bought a ticket, paid to see the movie. And you know, they were they they turned down a Netflix deal in order mm-hmm. to get into theaters. Yeah, Warner Brothers they, and all that, and that's a good, nice poke in the neck. Yeah, 
or I yeah. to Netflix. I was like, yeah. uh-huh, that not, that's not going to work all the time, Netflix. Yeah. Not, because had Netflix done that, and then the, the thing that they do, would have gone away. They, and it would be playing on Netflix right now. Yeah. And it wouldn't, and it's just not the same thing. It wouldn't it's be. It's not the same it thing. Wouldn't be, it wouldn't be knocking down the door that it's knocking down yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah, sure. and the, the previous, uh, all and they qualify this in a dozen different ways. So yeah. all Asian cast directed by an Asian person released look, by I, a major studio, Joy Luck Club, 25, 25 uh, years, ago. years ago. Look, Joy Luck Club, 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is which, a lot of qualifying, by the way. That, but you know what? Uh, I, I There were three films. 1993, by the way, the year of uh, Schindler's List, mm-hmm. which was not my favorite film of the year. I had three films that year. That's that, that To me, that's the greatest film year in, in my film reviewing career. Mm. 1993. There were three films that year. Um, actually, hold on. Uh, maybe four. Four films that year that are among my ten favorite films of the last 25 years. Four in one year. Mm. Uh, Remains of the Day, mm-hmm. Joy Luck Club, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Farewell My Concubine, Oh yes, and The Piano. Oh, yes. Those were all the same year. Yeah. Those are four Campion, unbelievable Ivory, movies. Uh, uh, Wang Wang, which is Joy yeah. Luck, right? Yeah. Uh, Campion, Ivy, Wang yeah. Wang, and... Chen, Chen Kaiga. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. That was a fantastic year. Great. Uh, Great year. the next year by uh, Quentin... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, that was Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It was a run, man. And, and, the, 90s, and those, the 90s were a son of a you, bitch, boy. Yeah, they were. I'll tell you, I will never forget those three years. Those were my first three years at the Cannes Film Festival. 92 was uh, The Best Intentions, yeah. the uh, Ingmar Bergman thing directed by Billy August. Then it was a tie between The Piano and Farewell My Concubine, mm-hmm. deservedly. And then it was Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. The 90s were something, weren't that they? Was something, man, you know. So, what, so let, for, just before we dive into everything, yes. what is up with Boots Riley? Why is he getting up in Spike? Well, for one thing, that, I think I know, but it's worth talking well, I, about. I, 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 so, like a couple, a couple of different things. Yeah. Going on. For one thing, Boots music, yeah. not just music. Boots was actually a film major. It, well, and 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 Boots, or we should point out, Boots has a film, had an indie yes. film that got a little bit of heat earlier this yes, year, and then kind of faded. And it kind of faded. Yeah. But the thing is, I was thinking about this too, because when when Spike's film started getting the heat, I thought, you know what? There's kind of a thing. The Boots Riley film is called. Uh, 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 sorry to bother. You. Sorry to bother. You. Sorry for bo- yeah. yeah. So which is which is the guy? He's a telemarketer. He's a black guy, and he puts on his white voice, yeah. right? And I thought, you know what? That's kind of joined at the hip with Spike's film. Black Klansman we're talking it's about. It's kind of joined at the hip with this idea, uh, you know, it's not it's not the comedy gimmick, it's not the sort of very broad gimmick that he's using, but the idea of the person that you meet is not the person you're talking to or that, that well, perception yeah, yeah, on yeah, the, the phone. Yeah, the thing with the phone, Black Klansman, of course, yeah. the true story of, uh, of a black officer in 1970, whatever the hell it was, uh, who infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan via phone, then yeah. using his partner, played by Adam Driver, uh, to be the white person who who met the Klan in person, in 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 the Boots movie, you have a telemarketer, yeah. young black man, who uh, learns to use his white voice. Yeah, <laughs> which, by the way, is a thing with with, with black folks. Yeah, we black folks of a certain age, by the yeah. way, grow up knowing that you have to learn two different languages and two different ways to speak. Uh, there's the language that you use in your community. Mm-hmm. And the way we speak in the community, which is completely different than the language that we use in the greater society. Right now, I'm using the language that we use in the greater society. When you're not here and it's just me and Wade or Sherman <laughs> or somebody like yeah. that, there's a whole different brother talking. I get it. You know, y- y- so, you know, it's that a thing. Is, and that is also literally true yes. in Haiti. Yes. Where in school, they speak French, and when they go home, they speak Creole. Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, yeah. 
so you know. And uh, and you know, I've I've met Haitians and spoke spoken to them in proper French, and they kind of think it's cute. <laughs> you know, they think it's cute and endearing, but uh, they just rather be uh, you uh, know hitting the creel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's a that's a thing. I think uh, in a lot and, of and places. And frankly, I think it happens in more cultures than uh, I, I know that it happens in Asian cultures. Talk to Justin Chang about it, uh, and he's like, believe us, believe me, we do that. I I have seen it in my family and my wife's family where we have you know parents who grew up in the south who have no southern accent but you drop them back into that environment and that twang is yeah. back like that you you did not want I was in a, I was stationed in Fairford outside London for yeah. about a year and a half in the early eighties I got back I swear to you. Everyone said, "Why are you talking with that British accent?" Uh, it's it's wild, and it right? went on. It went on yeah. for weeks. It went on for weeks. The the uh, so here's my my thing. I think Boots is under the impression that Spike has stolen his thunder. Mm. His film came out too early in the year. And now I think the award... that Boots thinks that he did it on purpose. And I think he may. And and I you know the the films have kind of a similar thing. And I think he feels like all of that award season juice is going to go to Spike instead of him. And if I were giving him advice, I would say this: Don't subscribe to this idea, which doesn't exist anymore, that that there's a black slot in mm -hmm. award season and Spike is going to get it and you're not. That I've seen that with my wife, where where That's women an acquiescence. that is an acquiescence. There there's this thing in Hollywood where women will literally be more brutal to other women and cannibalize other women. Because they feel like there are limited spots for women, mm -hmm. so they're all in a tighter competition for it. We got to get past that. In, 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 here's the notion: both of these things may have been true to a certain point. I yeah. think that we are at a point, and I, and I get in trouble a lot in, in uh, you know, in the black community because I, I say these things a lot. Sometimes we have to recognize when we've won. Sometimes we yeah. have these huge wins, and we keep fighting that battle. Boots and Spike may both win awards. Yes, at the this end is of the my year. point. Exactly. They could be at the same events. If they are, you want to be able to walk up and shake hands and go, "Loved your movie, man. Great. I loved yours too." You're not fighting for the same spot because I didn't. I didn't beat you. That's it. I. 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 I first of all, there are a lot of movies nominated. I beat yeah. them all. That's <laughs> Whichever right. Whichever was who won. There you go. So the, that slot, no. And and this is one of these moments, and it's true of a few things now. Uh, so this, and I, and I think that you're right about that. That, yeah. that, that that's you know a little bit of what's going on. And frankly, this comes from a couple of guys because neither Spoot, neither, neither Boots nor Spike are that young, and they're carrying over a mentality that comes from my generation. Um, yeah. uh, you know, you know, Boots, me, Boots, and Spike are all in the same age range, four or five years. And this is some some NAACP type mentality. Yeah. And 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 we grow we grew up with it. It gets inculcated into us, and we all end up fighting for this exact same space. And it's kind of like what happened with, uh, I think, with Steve McQueen and the writer of 12 Years of Slaves. Uh, oh, uh, oh, yes, uh, yes, yes, and that, yes. That yes. all happened, right? Yeah. And Steve McQueen, and he yeah. was up there, and then here comes, and he's like, and yeah. he's like, right. and he's like you know, only one of us. Ridley. Ridley, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was as if only one of these two black men, one yeah. British and one American, yeah. could have props for this movie. Yeah. As if they couldn't both stand there. And they it, and it got kind of ugly and it was a little embarrassing. It's uh yeah and you know these are all growing pains. Yeah. I get that uh, and that's why I think I'm I'm willing to cut people a lot of slack for these things. You know like like in Boots's case, I'm not ripping on him per se. I understand where he's coming from. Just want him to understand that we're you you don't need to go there. Yeah, you, it's okay. You you you're you're not directly in competition with no. that brother. Now Spike yeah. over the years has said and done some things. But you know Spike, look, we we also have to remember too that um. 
Uh, Spike came of age at a moment when there had been no films with predominantly black casts and directed by a black filmmaker that had ever gone mainstream. Yeah. It never happened. You'd yeah. gone through the black exploitation era. You had had a few sweet, things sweet, like uh, Sweet, 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 sweet Bags, for you know, sure. Yeah, popular films, but not mainstream studio releases. No, I mean, even stuff like like uh, like all the Charles Burnett stuff yeah. still lived in a very indie niche. And Spike broke that wall down. He broke it down with muscle, yeah. right? I mean, he came in and he talked big and he hit it big. And I think he, he, over the course of his career, was under the impression, not incorrectly, that you had to keep being belligerent to some degree to keep, you know, elbowing your... Because otherwise you're going to get elbowed aside. Mm -hmm. And he's never moved past that. And I'm, I'm not sure I want him to, you know. I, I, Particularly when, when it comes It sort of to, is who he is. When it comes to subject matter, absolutely. When it comes to... Because, to, you know, he, he had these issues with John Singleton, you know. Oh, I know. 15, 15, I mean, really, <laughs> I remember, the same thing. I remember the, the quote. the same thing. I didn't get it. It was... it was. I remember the quote even when he said, you know, uh, I didn't get into this business. I, I got into this business to just make movies and tell stories, not to, like, get chicks and go to parties like yeah. some people. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh... Oh, Dad, ouch. Bruh, why are you shanking the homie? Like, you know, like he didn't do nothing to you because he was dating Tyra Banks at the yeah. time. And my, but, but, you know, there was a moment. Yeah. And, and, and that's happened a few times across the course of his 30-year career. Yeah. That should, he should be above that. Yeah. It's what I'm thinking. He should just simply be above that. Man, I remember when he, was, when he got mad and said he'd never go back to Cannes because he should have won. Yeah. The only, there are only two people who ever stormed out of Cannes in a tantrum because they didn't win the top prize. Lars von Trier and Spike Lee. Those are the only <laughs> That's two. A wacky company. Spike, you don't want to be in Lars's company. Let Lars own that crazy space by he, himself. He, he didn't. He, look, he because uh, he uh, what did he win? He didn't win the, the main prize for Black Clansman. He won the audience. He won. Right? No, he won uh, screenplay. Screen, screenplay. I think it was screenplay. Okay. He won. Yeah. It was director or screenplay. Or, uh, it was one of the two. But it was one of the top prizes. Yeah, he was yeah. happy about it. But yeah. interesting. I, I hope it don't get ugly. All right. Uh, shall so we? Let's let's jump into this. I'm going to hit some uh, anime right at the top here. Uh, some really, really good stuff. Uh, a few things from uh, Section 23 and Sente, and then some stuff from some big old cool box sets from uh, Funimation. Uh, I love these titles. I really do. Uh, Sente it just does, has so many shows that are just basically uh, big-eyed, cute women with multicolored hair doing all kinds of heroic things in, uh, in mystical, semi-feudal environments. Some of them uh, very scantily clad. This may be the best one I have yet seen, and I love the title. It is called Armed Girls Machiavellism. Oh, I'm mispronouncing it again. It's, it's just, it, who does this title? Armed Girls Machiavellism. There it is. Machiavellism. I don't think that's a word, but we'll it's, not a word. It. Okay. it's not a word. It's not, it's important to point out, it's not Machiavellianism. Which, Which is, is what word. I think they may have meant. But remember, these titles are cooked up, you know, yeah. by people who do not speak English <laughs> uh, as a first language. So Armed Girls Machiavellism, uh, the complete collection. And uh, this is all about the uh, Aichi Coexistence Academy, which is um, the which is which used to be girls only. And now it's gone co-ed. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it gets into this really, really weird... There are these really weird kind of prep school politics going on here. Uh, it was a little bit mystical. There's a lot of, like, sword play and that kind of stuff going on. But the... Um, there, the, 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 there's a kind of an initiation thing that gets into a little bit of cross-dressing. I won't get you any beyond that. Just know that it... 
it's funny and it's just weird and twisted and uh, the action is great. The animation is terrific and it's actually a, a, a strange amount of bizarre fun. Uh, then there is also No Game, No Life Zero from Sente, which is uh, absolutely spectacularly beautiful animation, tremendous uh, colors and shading, and uh, it, it's really very, very innovative, very interesting. Um, uh, this takes place, again, in kind of a mystical uh, alternate, uh, alternate future, kind of future past, and uh, it's uh, kind of typical hero... You know, he, uh, Joseph Campbell, hero stuff, yes, but uh, with a heavy feminine inflection. But it's just really, really interesting, and uh, I would, I would just check it out for the artwork alone. It's really, really cool. Uh, then we have a, a double DVD, double Blu-ray set um, of Aura Battler Dunbine. Don't ask what it means. It, there's a whole thing goes to it. This is from the people that did Mobile Suit Gundam. And uh, it, this, it, this is all kind of an interdimensional adventure story uh, with primarily centering around this alternate universe uh, area known as Bison Well. And it's, it, it's a little hard going at the beginning to try to sort of uh, adapt to what's going on here. The, the narrative is similar in some ways, I would almost say, to Into the Badlands. It has kind of a similar politics oh, yeah. to Into the Badlands. It's a series that we love. Yeah, but, uh, but you know, it, 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 takes some, it, it takes a little getting used to to figure out the politics of it. Once you're in, it's, uh, you know, there's some fun following. And then we got some big old huge box sets here. Um, Twin Star Exorcists. This is, these are all from uh, Funimation now. These are all Blu-ray and DVD combo sets. Uh, Twin Star Exorcists is also incredibly well animated. This is a box set that comes prepared for more uh, stuff to put in it. This is uh, volume one. And then they're going to, you know, obviously you're gonna, they, they expect you to get ready for all the rest that are going to kind of pile into this. So they, they want they want to get you set up. They want to get you hooked up for the uh, for the rest of the, the, the other in, volumes that'll go into the box. Uh, and basically, this is just about, uh, this is kind of like Romeo and Juliet in a post-apocalyptic, uh, pre-apocalyptic uh, kind of situation. Um, these, are, these are two teenagers who have some kind of prophecy destiny, and, you know, they're living in this fantasy world with monsters and all kinds of perils, and it's where their destiny takes them. Again, kind of very Joseph Campbell-y. Uh, and then In Another World with My Smartphone, the complete series. This is really interesting because we, we talk a lot about how smartphones uh, completely rule us now and how they've changed the world and not necessarily for the better. And uh, I find it interesting that they have now literally put that into the title of a, an anime series, and they're kind of owning it. Uh, the Again, it's a fantasy thing where, you know, there's, a, there's, this, there's a, a, a hero who is killed and given a chance to resurrect and uh, have a second shot at life with the cell phone kind of being a part of this entire process. How the cell phone factors in is the weirdest, funniest, freakiest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. It's so bizarre I'm not sure you're supposed to to laugh at it. It's like if Luke Skywalker were running around with a cell phone. It's it's I I think they mean to make some kind of a comment about current culture and cell phone culture, but it's just uh, it it's I guess it's I guess it's a sign of the times. And then the last one, which I'm very very excited about, Star Blazers 2099. Uh, as anybody who knows anything about me, uh, 
I will know very quickly. I loved Star Blazers. Mm. Still do. I have every episode of Star Blazers, <laughs> which was otherwise known as Space Cruiser Yamato. Yep. Uh, the idea that the battleship Yamato was in some you know distant future is lifted off of the ocean floor where it was sunk during World War II and turned into a giant spaceship, and now we go out and fight these intergalactic civilizations that are threatening Earth. I lived on those shows. Those were the greatest shows. They made a live-action Star Blazers some years ago, which is kind of fun to watch. It never got out of Japan. It's a little bit heavy-handed and, and a tiny bit too slavish to the animated show, uh, kind of trying to imitate it in too many ways. But still, you know, the, the franchise really, really holds up. Uh, well, here we are 30 years after the original uh, a- animated show, and they are bringing it back. And Star Blazers 2099 absolutely beautifully honors the spirit of the original with better animation, equally good writing. Not sure that it's better. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's doing the same thing. They're just going back to the well. And I got to tell you, you, they, you, you can't really improve uh, on the wheel. They they do a great job here. The animation is terrific. Uh, this is a wonderful, fabulous box set. Comes with tons and tons of other cool stuff in it. They're expecting you to get Volume 2 at some point, so there's a space in the box for Volume 2 and a booklet. And uh, Star Blazers 2199 is absolutely the goods it delivers and fires on all cylinders it delivers the goods completely for anybody who's a fan of the original so um by all means definitely if you're if you're a completist and you already have the other sets from uh from way back years ago which should be on blu-ray but they're not uh you want to add this to it it's absolutely a load of fun so that is our anime gotta love it gotta love it gotta love it. what else we got uh let's see let's do some of the gay cinema i think perhaps Right from breaking yeah, glass. Yeah, let's do it. Um, uh, first one, a neat little film by a fellow named Anthony J. Caruso. Caruso, Anthony J. Caruso. Look him up. He's actually an actor. Been in a lot of stuff. You've been watching. He's one of those guys you've been watching on television shows, sure. and you, you just don't know his name. Directed two films. This is one of them. Um, it's you know, it, it's the sort of it's the sort of gay film that's been done before. It's about a guy who has a sort of calling from God mm-hmm. to become a sort of a brother or something like that. But then he meets a handyman named Gabe. Uh, which is a little obvious, and, uh, and, and you know he, he starts to like Gabe, and he has to figure out what he's going to do. You know th- that storyline is perfectly okay with me. Even the acting in this movie is okay with me. This movie is entirely too verbose. Um, Anthony is a little bit in love with his own writing. He's he's, yeah. he's the star of the movie. He's the director of the movie. He wrote the movie. Uh, and he likes every word that he uh, that he wrote, and he leaves them all in the movie. Uh, it would have uh, behooved him to have someone say, you know, Anthony, I think we got it. Uh, and this, instead of being two hours long, would be about 90 minutes long, and it would be a better movie. Um, but it is funny. I will give it that. All kinds of little uh, tributary storylines will go off this way and the other. Special commentary track here um, uh, from the director and a few other f- folks and some alternate takes in the trailer and stuff like that. It's a perfectly acceptable, nice little movie that could use a little trimming. Popped up on a whole lot of film festivals. Uh, Brotherly Love by Anthony J. Caruso from Breaking Glass. Very nice. And then we have another one of these little films. That, uh, these films, I, I, they go back all the way back to the uh, films like The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love from some 20 sure. years ago. Oh, well, this yeah. This is one, Porcupine Late, uh, a film about these two young uh, girls, really. I think they're 13 or 14 years old in the film, um, who are both visiting a lake and hanging out, and they become fast friends, and then a little bit more than fast friends. It's about how they sort of influence each other uh, over the course of this, uh, this summer. It's, very, it's just a lovely, sensitive film. Nothing particularly dramatic happens. I like this film more than the film that I just mentioned because it is a more, it's a quieter film with less talking, 
Uh, and I think it has to do with the fact that this is about two young women, whereas that other film was about two young men. And uh, this film is directed by a woman, as opposed to that film being directed by the guy who actually made it. So anyway, this film is just a little bit more, uh, a little quieter and a little sweeter. And it's exactly the same movie, but it's just done better. Uh, Porcupine Lake. Very, very nice. Also from Breaking Glass. I also rather like My Life with James Dean. This is another film from Breaking Glass. And yes, it does have a sort of gay theme, a sort of undertone, but it's really a, a film about a guy who's taking the movie to a film festival in France, to Normandy in France. Oh, fantastic. It's a little movie. And, uh, and it's all about the film festival tour and what that means mm -hmm. to him and what people seeing his movie and responding to his movie and how they interpret his movie. There are all these wonderful scenes where people come up to him after the screening and they tell him all sorts of things about the movie that he made, uh, things that he had no idea were in the context of the movie. And yes, like I said, there's a, there's a sort of gay romance in it, but it's just not the point. It's not about film. that. No, yeah, no. It's and not that's, the and that's, that's why these good. films work so good. Dominic yeah. Chosey, this wonderful. Anyway, it's more of a tribute to cinema than anything else, and I rather, I rather enjoyed it uh, quite a lot. Uh, also from Breaking Glass, Speed Walking. Uh, another film about young uh, teenagers. This one is set in a small town on the outskirts. Uh, set in a small town where there's this 14-year-old boy who's uh, going through one of those transitions. It's all set in about the middle 70s. And again, we have one of these movies about young uh, uh, young children or 14, 15-year-old kids. Uh, sort of lingering in the summer, figuring out who they are, and one of them figures out that he's probably gay. And it's this movie I like a lot because it's about the way his friends react to that. Yep. And they don't react in the typical sort of way, which I think is really interesting because this movie is, in fact, set in the middle 70s. Uh, so, neat film. Uh, Danish film, by the way. Um, Speedwalking from Breaking Glass. Paths, which is from a TLA releasing, is another film that, yes, has a sort of gay underlying theme, but it's a film that's not about that at all. Uh, it's about a couple that's been together for a very, very long time, or, or a relatively long time, uh, you know, and they have a son that they've raised, and that son has grown up and is now leaving home. And it's about this couple, who are actually still relatively speaking young, in their 40s or something like that, and how they are dealing with this gay, this uh, gay male couple, how they are dealing with the emptiness syndrome. Because you know what? Happens to them, too. Yeah. You know, you know, they, they, the kid's gone. How are we going to be now as a couple uh, you, when we don't have to worry about that? So, you know, uh, it's a really, really lovely film uh, from TLA releasing. Not a whole lot on it. It's in German with English subtitles. And we also have Paperboy, uh, a film by Curtis Casella and Cal Cabral, uh, both young gay men who make these really, really wonderful films. Um, so this one is about a guy who uh, makes a, has a brass decision. He decides to go up to San Francisco, um, uh, uh, and uh, he pretends to be straight, and he hangs out with his best friend's friends. And as far as they know, he's just this straight guy. But he's, he's simply engaged in this sort of uh, deception, only he's not really intending to be deceptive. He just wants to be somebody else for a minute. He wants to see what it means to be like a straight guy hanging around with straight That's guys, interesting. doing straight guy stuff. That's you interesting. Know, and it's a really that's sort a of interesting gimmick. kind of, yeah, it's, a, it's a hell of a gimmick. He's like, and it's just funny because we are, are, are of course, behind his eyes, seeing what he's seen and, 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 and how he's sort of silently smiling at the things that these nice. straight guys do. And it's interesting because he decides, you know what? I like being gay better. <laughs> which, I, which I can kind of see. Again, uh, special features include an audio commentary and a few behind the scenes looks and stuff like that. This one is from, uh, is, it, is, this, is it Dekaku? 
Deku. Deku. Yeah, Deku. Paper Boys. Neat yeah. movie. All right, so uh, got some new movies this week. Uh, we will, on the next show, talk about Deadpool, which uh, came to us just too late to be able to squeeze into this show. But uh, we got Show Dogs at the top here, and Show Dogs is not Deadpool 2. Uh, Raja Gosnell, who is the auteur behind Beverly Hills Chihuahua and Scooby-Doo, decided, I'm going to go make a dog movie again. Another talking dog movie, so he made Show Dogs. I don't get enough of those. Now I happen you to know, know I, you know I have issues. I know I know. I, now, <laughs> now, now, in I full issues. disclosure, I know some of the people involved in the production of this. I I know one of the producers quite well. I know another producer somewhat well, and uh, I, I I can't I can't even I can't even feign like oh go see it now. It's <laughs> it, uh, you know and they and they wouldn't either. They they know this is a lame movie. It's just it's a junk movie. Uh, look, I, Will Arnett. Has a dog that talks like ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, and they're detectives. There it is. That's the movie. There's nothing else. Um, come on, ludicrous. What's the deal? Uh, and and he's going by Chris in quotes ludicrous <laughs> because bridges now. He's trying to do the thing like Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne with the rock eventually went away. Yeah, it, you know they, when uh, they when they've got the when they've got the moniker for wrestling or rapping or whatever else it is that you do, eventually they kind of want to go legit. So they got to kind of get their actor name going. And you know what's funny. I watched an episode of Star Trek Voyager last night. Yeah. And it's an episode in which uh, uh, Seven of Nine and, and, and Dwayne, The yeah. Rock Johnson, yeah. are fighting in this. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. whole thing. I'm looking up there. I'm like, oh, my God, that's, that's, that's yeah. The Rock. And I wait. Yeah. And his credit in that episode is Dwayne Johnson. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Even though, but he was the Rock back then. But yeah. it's so it's funny. He's gone full circle. Yeah. He had to become the Rock so that he could become Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Not funny. And, and that's just wild. Crazy. Well, uh, anyway, so Show Dogs, it's on, you know, it's Movies Anywhere, it's Blu-ray, DVD, it's, if you love talking dogs, whatever. Uh, the Miracle Season is on DVD. This is, uh, this is you know, yeah. a triumphant sports movie. It's perfectly fine. It's uh, based on a true story about a volleyball team. Yeah, uh, a little, a little uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's a high, you know, it's a, it's a girls' high school volleyball team, and uh, their, their star player dies. William Hurt plays the dad. Helen Hunt plays the coach. And they've got to somehow rally the team to, yeah. you know, in, in the memory of the, the 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 dead girl to kind of triumph. And it's look, I, it, it works. It does exactly yeah. what you expect it's going to do for a sports film. Volleyball is not as interesting as contact sports yeah. like soccer and and football, football and yeah. basketball, where you know you can you can get some real drama going. It's a you know you're separated by a net, and it's not quite the same thing. However. Yeah. I'd say the same thing about tennis, and my favorite film of the year so far is yeah. is Borg versus McEnroe. Which so, bugs me that that movie did not. You know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I, I just, just don't get that. I just don't get it. By the way, as long as we're on the subject, so I watched the uh, John McEnroe documentary, which I have to cover on Film Week next, next week. Next week. Okay, yeah. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. It is amazing because it's not a documentary about McEnroe, it's a documentary about cinema. Oh. It's amazing. I, I'm just going to tell everybody this really quickly. It, I, I didn't know what to expect. It starts off with a quote by Jean-Luc Godard, mm-hmm. of all damn things. Mm-hmm. And you know me. I, I'm like, I, I can respect Godard, but I, I, <laughs> I just as soon punch him in the face for being such a pretentious dork. But the quote is, you know, cinema, uh, the cinema is all lies. Sports doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, it, there's, a, there's a, a, a very famous French... Uh, tennis player and sports documentarian who made all these kind of tennis training films way back in the day who has for who for years was set up at uh, the clay courts during the French Open to just shoot film. But he's not shooting 
you know, like, and he shot years and years and hundreds of hours of McEnroe mm -hmm. from his little hole and, you know, is secluded and it's all, you know, uh, uh, it, it's all insulated. So they, the, so that, because McEnroe kept complaining about the sound of the 16 millimeter camera going, <laughs> it drove him nuts. And there's even footage of him yelling at him saying, get that mic out of my face, which is hysterical. But what he does is he just puts the camera on McEnroe. And and he's learning all of the things like this is how you win a Grand Slam. You don't you don't learn about how McEnroe wins by watching McEnroe and the other player. Mm -hmm. You learn from just watching McEnroe. Mm. And so you're watching very often just one side of the match. But it's fascinating. It, and it's, it's so it's as a tennis player and a tennis fan, you will oh, find I'm, this. I'm really this is so interesting. And because and McEnroe, of course, would be would would be. There's a wonderful documentary called The French from 1982. Yeah, it's about the French Open. Yeah, McEnroe plays a big him and Borg because that was yeah. the, they had that yeah. big gigantic thing and Yannick Noah, young Yannick Noah, and our wall behind the scenes of all of that. Yeah. it's a beautiful film. I think it's William Klein or something. Uh, and uh, because because it's all ambient sound. Yeah, right. There's no voiceover, no narrator. Yeah. It's just nothing but the sound of the French Open. And very often it's Mac and the girl going bananas. And very often it's him screaming the, at the guy that you're talking about, yes. who's shooting in that the, little hole. Cubby the hole most right interesting part, the most interesting observation here is that Mac and Rowe was not just an expert at the drama of how to finish a point with those drop shots and mm -hmm. all the, you know, not nobody ever knowing where he was going to hit the ball and all of his little deceptive things mm -hmm. that, you know, Andre Agassi eventually did as well. But he was a master at how to start mm -hmm. the point. Those tantrums, those tirades dictated mm -hmm. the temperament and the tenor of a, every given point before it, the, the, before he even served. Oh, it's anybody it, served. It, it was, it he was, set the tone. It was, he, was, he was controlling the tone. He was controlling the pace. He's of the, the game. Bobby Fisher of tennis. You know exactly. You know it's amazing. Uh, uh, it's it, a great he, was, he was playing chess. All right, really great. I have to so, see that one. Yes. So uh, American Animals. Uh, Bart Layton, who's a director I've never heard of before, but uh, does a very very good job with this really interesting offbeat heist film, uh, which is about heisting rare books from a I library. I issues with that movie. Did you did, did you happen to hear me I, on the radio you know, show about that? I, movie? I didn't. What were your issues? It, well, you, true story. Yeah. Right? They, they These boys in, in 2000, whatever it is, yeah. young young guys, uh, uh, steal uh, that John Audubon book. Right? Yeah. Uh, and in doing so, this is all this all happened in Kentucky. Now, these were sort of like upper middle class young yeah. men uh, at universities. One kid is like on the lacrosse team. The other kid is like a, a budding artist. And yeah. yet they're, they're engaged in all of this sort of angst about yeah. their future. Yeah. Angst about, which, oh, which, which, do? does, which never quite no. comes off. No. I, I agree know, with and, that. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these. And they decide to pull off this heist, and they actually do this thing. Here's the thing. There's a woman, and this is all true story, with whom they use a cattle prod sort of like shocking device. And they shock her and knock her out so that they can pull off this heist. All right, now. The thing about this movie is the actual guys who did this are in this movie. Yeah, they cut to these guys and they're sort of telling the story as we go back and forth in, in red in now. red's fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Now the actors playing the playing playing them in the movie are all very good, by yeah. the way, wonderfully act, act and all this kind of stuff. But when we cut to these guys, the actual guys, this is what I realized: these guys are assholes. <laughs> That's true. These guys are still assholes, yep. and they are still wholly unaware. Of what they, of how disgusting what they did yep, are. True. They, 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 and 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 thus the filmmakers seem to be unaware of it too. You think? You see, now I thought the filmmaker was aware of it. You tell that, me. I I got the impression that that this was sort of give them a, give them enough rope. 
And they will hang themselves. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's that was what I that that was the my takeaway. But you may be right. Maybe maybe there's an obliviousness to to it as well. I thought it was certainly a very interesting way to tell this story. Uh, certainly something that has been done before. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just I, I thought because interesting it comes tack. close to I Tanya because you know yeah. Tanya Harding yeah. and uh, and Gluli. Oh, all they those they clearly are. They're very aware of how ridiculous. But the filmmakers it is. are very aware yeah. that these people are all lying. Yes. And I Tanya. And th- th- that rope you're talking about, yeah. they definitely just, yeah, here's your rope, sure. here's your rope. But I don't know, I'll, I'll have to consider that. But that's, so, that was an interesting thing about well, that. Well, there's a commentary yeah. uh, uh, on this as well, which is also where I, I got the, the the very clear impression that they are not as as enamored of these people as, as might uh, appear. It's a very interesting commentary. Not as, not as forthcoming as you might hope. Uh, also has some deleted scenes and featurettes. And a uh, woman walks ahead with Jessica Chastain and Sam Rockwell – uh, is um is is good. I wish it was better. Yeah. I, I'm kind of you know hostiles got I- inside my skin. Yeah, that was my favorite film of last year, and uh, uh, you know that this this is kind of in the same territory, but just doesn't hit it as hard. Nonetheless, love all these actors. Basically, Jessica Chastain is a it's a true story. Goes to paint the portrait of uh, Sitting Bull, who is played very well by Michael Gray Eyes. And Sam Rockwell is the uh, U.S. Army officer who's kind of uh, not not down with the whole situation and not down with the native yeah. peoples and plays his usual kind of you know jerky self um, very very well. But nonetheless, beautifully made, beautifully shot, um, well very well directed. Susanna White uh, does a great job directing it and uh, gives a wonderful audio commentary as well. Um, nonetheless, it just doesn't have the same impact as something like Hostiles, yeah, yeah. you know, which just a deeply, well, brutal, brutal, but also very emotional. Yeah. All Upgrade. Right. Um, I like this movie, uh, Upgrade, which kind of blew me away because it, it sort of looked like one of those high concepty yeah. sort of uh, sort of movies, but uh, you know, but it was kind of neat and it and it has an energy to it. And once it gets going, man, it does not stop. Anyway, nice. uh, this, there's this guy. His, his his wife is killed. He's left paralyzed. Uh, it's in, it's set slightly in the future, and there's this way that one can simply repair their bodies, and they can get. But it's Fantastic. not just a matter of repairing your body. Yeah. You get upgrades. <laughs> you can you can do stuff now that you couldn't couldn't do before. And uh, he decides to figure out who killed his wife. Nice. Uh, and use those skills to uh, to get him there. And that's it's right. just a really really neat concept. It's like a um sort of Charles Rose those Bronson movies sure. back in the day. Uh, um, um, uh, where Charlie Bronson yeah. after the, it was like that, right? Only in a high tech, uh, high concept kind of way. Really, really right. kind of neat. From the producers of Get Out and and, and uh, Happy Death Day and The Purge, they make sure to sort of mention that on the box. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they didn't really need to because it's a pretty good movie all by itself. Nothing on this sucker in the way of special features, though, which is kind of buggy to me because it's the kind of movie where you really wish that they had gone behind the scenes a little bit. Yeah. And talked about yeah. yeah. So here's an odd little indie: uh, The House of Tomorrow. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, with uh, Ozzy Butterfield, who has become the go-to actor for playing just weird, weird young kids. Uh, you know, born on Mars or Ender's Game or whatever it is. You know, that's his that's his gig. So he plays the weird kids, and he does it very very well. Uh, I wish he'd kind of stop doing it though, because I keep <laughs> him, I, I'm I'm like comparing all of the different parts in my head. Like, which one of the weird Ozzy Butterfield parts was weirder than the others? Anyway, here uh, he's a 16-year-old kid who has spent basically his entire life living in a geodesic dome with his uh, grandmother, played by Ellen Burstyn, who also has been playing a lot of weird parts in the last few years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the whole thing is the metaphor for coming. It's, it's the same thing as in that Martian kid movie where, you know, how yeah. do you come out of your world? How yeah. do you enter this, uh, you know, new world? How do you, it's, it's, a, it's a, just a big kind of uh, 
counterculture coming of age metaphor, and it uh, it it kind of works. Um, the the whole the way that Buckminster Fuller is integrated into this, and if you don't know who Buckminster the Fuller geodesic was, geodesic dome dude, yeah, that that's what gets a little bit. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it's it's a little twee. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like if you're if you're going to go to a sort of fringe topic, it would help to make it accessible to audiences who don't sort of understand the history of the fringiness, right. as opposed to doubling down on the fringiness yeah. and just saying we're gonna we're gonna get Buckminster Fuller in this, and we're gonna we're gonna make all these references to things that you need to go home and look up. If I gotta go home and look up a bunch of stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not really enjoying the movie. I'm not going to. No. It, it, your, your movie's gonna play to a very you know yeah. very very particular audience. Uh, the book club, or book club, I should say, Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, Mary Steenburgen, all of them uh, ladies that I have had gigantic crushes on uh, uh, over the course of the last 35 or 40 years, as still do. And they are good in this movie. This movie isn't all that good, but they are individually quite good in this movie. So it's a movie about these ladies of a certain age who all decide to read Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, the, the, yep. the, the movie for which the... Um, uh, uh, from uh, the books from which the Fifty Shades of Grey movies are made, and it and, and what that means to rekindling their sort of sexual desire and love lives, and and the people they meet, the people they meet include Andy Garcia and Don Johnson and Craig T. Nelson, Craig T. Nelson and Richard Dreyfuss, uh, all of whom you know uh, are pretty cool, and you really uh, you can't get enough of. It's strange though. I look at these guys who were like icons of my life, right? And you do. I wanted to be Don Johnson. And now he's playing like, you know, middle-aged dude, yeah. <laughs> you know, hunting down Diane Keaton. Uh, but you know what? I, I guess that happens to all of us. All <laughs> kinds of stuff <laughs> on this uh, uh, movie. Again, it's in the vein of those sort of movies. You know what's weird about these movies, Wade? Hmm. They're never as good as the, the equivalent of this movie in an English film, a British yeah, film. It's true. Would be better. Yeah. You know, First Miracle, blah, blah, yeah, blah, whatever yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the exact same thing would yeah. be better. We end up with a Nancy Myers film. Um, uh, of some sort, or yeah. a film like this, and, yeah. you know, it's a, and they're okay, but they're just never as good as the yeah, ones who are literally you. doing the same thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been waiting to get uh, Jean Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren together in the movie. For this. <laughs> I don't even know, man. I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. I wrote letters, and yeah. finally, uh, <laughs> finally, uh, the good folks at Lion, Lionsgate have done it. Jean Claude and Dolph in a movie called Blackwater. We got. You got Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's being held by the CIA, yeah. and a black site on a submarine under the water. That's it. That's all I need to know. And, hey, that's it, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, they've decided to do this uh, while uh, Dolph Lundgren is a prisoner on the same submarine. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Uh, so Dolph and Jean-Claude decide that they're going to break out of uh, that black site and off of that submarine, and sure enough, they do. Um, hey, man, you know, uh, if you had told me that movies like this still – Still had a life. Um, I would have. I would have. But you know, they do. People love these movies, and people love these guys, and they and they go see these movies. So Blackwater, Jean Claude, and Dolph. So higher power. You can learn a lot from the existence of this movie. This is uh, from Magnolia via their genre line of Magnet. This is on a uh, Blu-ray set. Um, so here's the thing. This is from the producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, who was uh, who was a big cheese over at Warner Brothers once upon oh, yeah. a time. Did a lot of big movies over there. And he's now independent, making you know, getting his own movies financed. And uh, you, when you, when you do those kinds of, when you, when you're an independent producer, when you're not a studio, and you put a movie like this together, and a big studio does not pick it up, you're kind of stuck. Now you're into straight to video territory, and that's kind of where these movies live now. And it's called Higher Power. the The tagline on this is just well, 
the power to save the world or to end it. What does that mean? Mm. The power to save the world or to end it? Yeah. I don't, I yeah, don't, no. it's, it's, it's a mad scientist movie, yeah. basically, a guy and his family, and, you know, he's, it, it reminds me a lot of the fourth season of The Flash, which we're going to yeah. talk about shortly as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, where you're dealing with somebody who's just, you know, a, a just a, ma- how do you over, overcome somebody who's almost godlike in their power and their knowledge? It's kind of silly. We've seen that many, many times before. It's usually a computer. In this case, it's uh, just a mad scientist. And uh, lots of special effects, loads of special effects, and that's how they plug this thing, from the producer of Transformers and G.I. Joe and the visual effects artist of 300 Fantastic Four and X-Men Origins. Let me explain something to you. Transformers is a terrible movie. G.I. Joe is a terrible movie. 300, I know a lot of people like it. I hate 300. Fantastic Four, well, which, which, which terrible version of it? And then X-Men Origins, okay, fair enough. I liked X-Men Origins, but just because you got the special effects guy from X-Men Origins, this is not a selling point. No. I'm not looking at those going, oh, wow, that's a – sure, I'll go – no. No, no. I didn't even do that when I watched X-Men Origins. No. I didn't care who the effects guy was on X-Men Origins. What the hell do I care? No. Um, John John Cameron Mitchell, man, when he hit the scene back with Hedwig (laughs) – He kind of peaked. uh, Yeah, you know. He's had a hard time – well, I shouldn't say that. He's 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 a very uneven filmmaker. Yeah, I love Hedvig, uh, and I think Rabbit Hole is one of the best films of the past fifteen years. Short bus, of course, between those two was, was, right. was, was more definitively sort of a, a, a sort of gay experimental, uh, experimental sort of yeah. thing, and that was fine with me, particularly right after Hedwig. And then you know a lot of television in there too, I yeah, mean, Glow, Gordon, and, and um, uh, some of that kind of stuff. And he acts a lot too, Mozart in the Jungle and all that. But that directing career. Which I thought was on, that was 2001, hit me. I know. Uh, um, sort of, you know, became a more ordinary sort of thing. And thus, we have this film, How to Talk to Girls and Go to Parties, Elle Fanning and Alex Sharp, and a pop-up by Nicole Kidman. And a film um, that should, with that sort of a cast and, and John Cam- Cameron Mitchell, should have been a little bit more uh, noted, but was not. Because it's really not that good. It is a quirky film, and that's, that's what you just said. It's just incredibly uneven. Um, uh, set in 1977, London. The movie is about a bunch of aliens, young aliens, who come to uh, 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 to London, to Earth, uh, to engage in a in, in a rite of alien yeah. passage, and, and they meet these uh, these you know human uh, children, uh, and who don't know that they're aliens. Kind of uh, lost me and, already. And, and you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, right there. And I can yeah. see why John Cameron would think that that was cute and funny. It's sort of androgynous and has a sort of a man who fell to Earth sort of dynamic. You know, Bowie mm-hmm. and all of that. Kind of stuff meets, uh, you know, uh, London pops, but no, it just doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. Um, and I don't know, uh, John Cameron, he's doing well as an actor. This does have an audio commentary from him with actors L. Fanning and Alex Sharp, and a making of sort of uh, documentary and some deleted scenes. Uh, kind of a sort of late life coming of age movie called Escape uh, or The Escape. Um, this is with Gemma Arterton. Uh, so here's the deal. Gemma Arterton is a, if you can believe it or not, uh, she deglams herself to play sort of a beleaguered London housewife. Dominic yeah. Cooper is her husband, yeah. and uh, her life isn't all it's cracked up to be. So she decides to escape. Yeah, she almost goes on a bit of a walkabout, really. That's it. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. And it, you know, it's really nicely acted. I love Gemma Arterton, who of course starred in Their Finest, which mm. I thought was the best of the Dunkirk movies. Got yeah. no love because of dumb things okay. that I won't get into. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this is perfectly fine. Uh, Dominic Savage is the writer-director. It's a lovely film. I don't think it's a great film, but I'm glad that it's out there. It's from IFC Films on DVD, not on Blu-ray. Neatly emotional little number. 
Uh, all right, let's uh, let's hit some docu- uh, some documentary. Uh, I'm jumping the gun here on this. Uh, some television, and I'm going to start off with documentary now. That's where my head was. Documentary now, if you haven't seen this, is like some of the greatest television of the last 20 years. Um, it's completely bit funny, as Tim would often say. Yes. It's very, uh, it, you know, we're talking about sketch comedy people here, basically. So this is Bill. This is a, the the brainchild of Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, both of them looking to kind of uh, bust out some things that they weren't able to fully explore on SNL. Mm-hmm. And one of those is to basically do um, a kind of mock documentary comedy show. And what Documentary Now does, and this is quote unquote hosted by Helen Mirren to give it that that very officious British sense <laughs> of authenticity. Uh, I mean, and she keeps a straight face too. It's absolutely a beautiful thing. It's just, it's just a wonder to watch her be completely straight on this. But um, every episode is like a different, stylistically perfect riff on some other documentary, a great documentary, a documentary uh, style, whatever the case is. It's just all mock documentary and faux documentary. And if you've ever seen any of the stuff, like what's the uh, what's the 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 the, the lock the mock Loch Ness movie? Oh yes, with, uh, the Peter Jackson. You know, th- I mean that it's that kind of thing. It's just it's hysterical. And and once you get the and if you're a documentary fan and you know the references and you can kind of spot, you know, okay, now they're doing a Great Gardens on me and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. If when you know that, it just absolutely rips you to pieces. It's so unbelievably funny, and the guest stars are just through the roof. Not just people from SNL. There are plenty of those. But there are people that just come in from left field, and it's uh, it's absolutely a stone-cold riot. I think this is just so funny and so much fun. you got to see a documentary now, exclamation point. Fred Armisen and Bill Hader doing it. Uh, get Shorty, the television series, inspired by the Elmore Leonard 19... It, it, look, I, I, read that, I read that novel in 1990. Yep. And then, of course, there was the Get Shorty movies, and, I, and sure. you know, whatever the other one was... Um, uh, about with Shelley. There yeah, were, there were with, two of them. Well, with, with Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, with Dwayne Johnson. Where he like, does the, the, the pants the and the whole thing. And the pants all that. And, and first Get Shorty movie, pretty good. Not as good as the book. Uh, second Get Shorty movie, uh, Get Shorty movie, or sequel to Get Shorty yeah. movie, still not as good as the book. This series, definitely not as good as the book, but as much fun, way more fun than that second movie. You got Crystal Dowd and Ray Romano. Uh, and this and this, and we have the first complete season here. So I don't know. Uh, it, it's not up there with the best crime sort of comedy uh, drama noir that one can watch. But it's kind of funny with these guys doing this stuff. Melissa McCarthy and a few other people show up on it. Uh, all kinds of um, special features on here. But you know, I don't know. You got to kind of be into the Get Shorty stuff. This is a three dish set. Uh, the complete first season, Get Shorty. So we got a couple of uh, superhero things here, and uh, mixed feelings about both of them. Both of them in their fourth seasons. So Gotham in its fourth season, we're we're starting to get to you know the the the, the whole Batman thing. That's yeah. right. That's right. Where where we, Bruce Wayne is kind of getting, going in that direction, and Ra's al Ghul, and you know we we got we got the Riddlers showing up and Penguin and everything. You know it, it's all it's all kind of going in the right direction. You feel the momentum there. You feel this uh, this series getting ready to kind of wrap out and uh but the thing is i just this 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 show never had a lot of momentum for me the fourth season 
I'm going to say this. Fourth season is better than the third season, which is better than the second, which is better than the first. Mm-hmm. But it's a slow burn, burn yeah. man. It's slow to get to that fourth season. And uh, I almost gave up on the first se- after the first season. I was like, this isn't working for me. The, 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 the thing that happens uh, uh, along the course of the seasons of Gotham is that the show gets a little darker and more brutal. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, it starts taking people out. Uh, and characters uh, take individual turns. Yes, they do. Uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's not Flash. No, it isn't. Which it's is what I'm going to hit in a second. What you're about to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like what they. I really like in this season what they do with Poison Ivy. I mm-hmm. thought that it's a nice change from what we've seen in in the movies mm-hmm. and certainly even in some of the comic books. But meanwhile, we have Flash over here in its fourth season. Um, the Flash in its fourth season, I feel, I truly feel my relationship to the Flash is much like the relationship that a lifelong heroin addict has to smack. <laughs> and it's... It, you love I, it, but you hate it. Because I binge watch these things, and then I yeah. think I've kicked the addiction, and I'm like, oh, it's, now I'm going to get back to a normal life. Yeah. And then another one comes around, and I fall right off the wagon, and I'm back in. And damn it, it's like, it's Barry and Iris and that whole family thing, and it's just, you know... It, it, and here's the thing. Over the course of four seasons, a show that started off being about one guy who's a superhero... Basically, everybody on the show yeah. now is a superhero. Yeah. Everybody on the show, except for Dad. Yeah. Dad's the only, Dad and is the only one that's not technically a superhero or hasn't played a superhero in it's some just, way. It's that once they set off that, that Iris, is a Even Iris has her superhero moment yeah. in this. Uh, uh, it's like, oh. You get to see what it's like to be Barry. Yeah. It's just, um, and here's the thing. The, what's, what's refreshing about this fourth season is also what's weak about the fourth season. And I know where they're going to go in the fifth season, and they're, they're going to go right back to the well. But we've been about fighting speedsters, increasingly evil speedsters mm-hmm. and more Speed powerful speedsters. And all that, yeah. yeah, in in every single of one of the first three seasons. And and they're all from the comics. Yeah. Here we now have a villain, uh, that it, the Thinker, yeah. which is also from the comics, but not a speedster. Mm-hmm. He is so smart that he wrote, has his floating chair, and he's smarter, and he knows what everyone's going to do before they do it, and he's, it's a big chess match, and how do you defeat him in the chess match? And it, Ultimately, it doesn't really make any sense yeah. what they do. They, do, they just get to the last episode. They get to episode 22, and they got to end it somehow, so Every Flash, it, it, the reason why I love The Flash is because no matter what is going on in The Flash, no matter what characters, no matter, it doesn't really, there's only one thing going on in The Flash. Barry is in it, love with Iris. That's it. And and and, and, and what, if what nothing's gonna happen to Iris. <laughs> he will save. The, he'll do it. But nothing is yeah. going to happen because Barry is bananas about Iris. That's, that's it. it. I mean, the whole thing about the mother and finding yeah. out because that was a, this sort of driving storyline for a long time. But even that, at the end of the day, was just a MacGuffin because he, they were waiting for Barry to admit that he was in love with Iris. I won't. I and, won't go into all of the other subplots that keep coming back. Killer Frost and yeah. you know the, and 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 uh, and and what's his face the the the. Uh, um, Gosh, which you, one? You would think I would know all the all the characters by now. Uh, Cisco. Oh, Cisco, Cisco's yeah. relationship with what's her face, oh, yes, and then with you the know, angry with the, with it, the, uh, yeah, and then we get <laughs> yeah, that, all that stuff. It's it, and then and then the fact that we got two other speedsters in here in Iris's brother, who's Kid Flash, oh, yeah. and then Jesse Quick. Yeah. Well, we well we can't. We, it's only one Flash, so we got to figure out excuses to make them go away for a few episodes and occasionally come back come when back, we need yeah. them. That bugs me, but you know what? I can't I, let this show go. I don't. I don't even try. I, don't I can't even let try. it go. I don't even try. It's just because I'm like, 
Every time somebody kidnaps Iris, I, I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that, homie. <laughs> Shouldn't have kidnapped Iris. That's the only, that's the only time they go wrong. It's you true. kidnap Iris. So Don't true. do that. You might win. Yeah. But they're going to kick your ass now. Yep. Ash versus the Evil Dead. Um, so this series is set 30 years after The yeah. Evil Dead, which yeah. is you know, kind of interesting to me because uh, I don't even think – yeah, it's been about 30 years since The Evil Dead. So they kind of yeah. keep it in real time. Yeah. And Ash has been sort of like hiding out and you know, everything. Yeah. Going. And, uh, and we're into the third season now. And mm. I like the third season because, to be honest with you, I didn't care for the first season of this. Right. You know, uh, yeah, Bruce, Bruce Campbell, he's, he's got the belly and he's putting on – they're sort of playing all the th- – it's been sure. 30 years jokes. And I'm like, that's Bruce Campbell. I don't care for these jokes. <laughs> for one thing, he's like, he's like two years younger than me. Um, but by the time we get to the third season, Bruce has uh, 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 leaned out and manned up, and he's got that chainsaw hand, and he's got these, he's got uh, Kelly and that other dude yeah. uh, running with him. And you know yeah. what they're doing? They're messing up the. the yep. And now we're into the to the movie that I love. Now yeah. we're we 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 got the we got the movie where a homie is talking crap and taking names. Yep. And uh, so so by the time you get to the third season, this is much more like the series of movies. Yep. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, Evil Dead and. Sure. That kind of stuff. A lot more fun. Um, special features, uh, season overview, inside the world of Ash versus the Evil Dead, and a whole bunch of audio commentary. Got a couple from uh, Mill Creek here. A couple of complete series that have now made their way to the Mill Creek Blu-ray complete series line, uh, which means usually that the individual series have played out, and Mill Creek is going to offer a uh, an affordable box set for people who missed it the first time around. Both of these are worth checking out. I like one better than the other. Uh, Masters of Sex, the complete series actually ages pretty well with time, to be honest. Uh, Michael Sheen, who has gone on to be a really, really terrific actor in so many great movies, uh, is really, really great in this. So is Lizzie Kaplan, who's also gone on to be really terrific. Uh, Now You See Me Too, probably the best thing in that. Um, But, uh, yeah, this is is really uh, quite an interesting look at a particular um, moment in time. The whole, uh, you know, Masters and Johnson... Study, which sort of came on the heels of Kinsey uh, studying human sexuality and how that changed society and yeah. all of that, and uh, it's a really it's a it's a good show. It really is a good show. Uh, four seasons is all you need, and it's in a box set from Mill Creek. Mill Creek also has a three season box set on Blu-ray, Happy Endings, which uh, I'm less fond of. It's fun. It's funny. It's a little fluffy. Um, you know, it doesn't 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 quite uh, hit the high marks that uh, a lot of other shows do. Certainly, isn't in the same caliber as uh, as Masters of Sex, but it's got a great cast. Damon Wayans Jr. who looks just like his freaking dad, which yeah. is just unbelievable. Um, Adam Pally, Eliza Coop, uh, Zachary Knighton. Uh, these are all really, really you know, Elisha Cuthbert. These are all very, very talented actors, and they have a lot of fun with this. So, uh, you know, it's uh. It's kind of like you know, uh, even even the the artwork references Bob and Carol and Ted and oh Alice a little bit. Yes, it's, of course, it it's just you know, it's like thirty something meets Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in the, in the present day. Friends for touch of friends, touch of friends, yeah, it's all that well. stuff. Uh, the Terror first complete season was an actually very very creepy um, a series that uh, that combines uh, some history, some real life history uh, about a ship called uh, it was a Royal Navy expedition ship known as USS Terror. There were two ships, actually. And they were sent uh, to find the uh, fabled Northwest Passage. And they actually left in about 1847, not 1848, when the series was set. But, you know, there are reasons for that. Nevertheless, uh, they do this. They get, they get uh, hemmed in by, by ice flows uh, uh, in the winter. And they find themselves trapped near the Arctic, uh, but trapped nonetheless. 
the next thing you know, they're, they're being hunted by a gigantic predator. Now, it doesn't give anything away to say that the predator in the series is a giant uh, uh, polar bear. Polar bear. Yep. And it's, it's hunting them down and it's killing them. Now, the series then does something kind of interesting. This is where we start to weave in uh, uh, stuff that didn't, didn't actually happen because it kind of goes a little bit supernatural. Uh, and it gets very dark and sort of very gothic. And now we're in sort of like Frankenstein Dracula territory, set at the in the in the Arctic near the Arctic mm-hmm. Circle with polar bears eating people. And then eventually we get to the cannibalism. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we gotta get to the cannibalism. But it's a yeah. hell of a first complete season. Uh, it's very beautifully done, very beautifully shot. Um, special features include a look at the characters and, uh, and, and a little bit of discussion of the actual history of the thing. And Ridley Scott is one of the producers of this. And, you know, Ridley has a particular way with these kinds of things. So it's good stuff. Beautifully acted. Wonderfully done. Nice. So uh, I'm going to hit some uh, some CBS stuff here. And while we're on the subject, you know, uh, Les Moonves, that, that kind of went mm. away for a moment. But yeah. there's an investigation going on. We'll see what comes of that. But the, uh, the whole Paramount CBS uh, thing seems to be crumbling rather quickly. That said, CBS has a very particular kind of cop show that they do, very yeah. particular kind of procedural. And uh, we've got, we got it in the spades here. It's a little industry. It's the, an industry. The, these the, are, the, it's the, an industry. These there. shows are all basically the same. So we've got now uh, on the heels, uh, and this was a thing, look. Dick Wolf started this nonsense with Law and Order. Hey, I think I'll do a second, maybe a third, maybe a fourth. Mid- let's do five Law and Order shows. Let's yeah. just have them all intersect. Yeah. And he does that now with the Chicago shows, yeah. doing basically the same thing, uh, which I think works better with the and Chicago shows. And it really shows. was him because I, you know, when I think about, because I think about the Botchko shows, but they were all actually different shows. I mean, they were cop shows, but they were different See, cop shows. It was after Hill Street Law- Blues. Yeah, it's no, not it was, NYPD Blues. CSI went and did it too, but CSI didn't do it until Law and Order turned it into a cottage industry, yeah. right? And then we're like, well, we'll we can do some multiple CSIs, and then now there's a CSI everywhere. So the next one to do that was NCIS. I don't know why we got when we need so many NCISs, but I guess we do. So uh, the original NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, Which seems so specialized. It's so specialized. So, but I guess you know wherever wherever there's a city that there's in, there can be an NCIS. Next, we're gonna have like NCIS Topeka. <laughs> really? Isn't Topeka landlocked? <laughs> Why would there be Navy people in Topeka? Uh, Shut up. Just go with it. Uh, so NCIS, the original one, in its fifteenth season. Mark Harmon, you are no one. No wonder Pam Dauber doesn't need to work. My yeah. goodness, he yeah. just rakes it in. Uh, so, 15th season, it's all the same, man. You know, there's like stuff on here with Joe Spano, who was, of course, an old yeah, Botchko yeah. guy as well. Mark Harmon. I mean, I'm glad these people are working, but my gosh, I can't really get through. I can't get through them anymore. No, and, and, just, I, and, by, and I was a fan of the early ones. And uh, right, and then of course, by now we're also into season nine of NCIS Los Angeles. Which is, is that the LL Cool J and that's uh, yeah and and, uh, and Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, Yo, Sherman and Sherman did a couple of those. I'm our, thrilled our that 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 LL and Chris uh, are able to make their boat payments and their mortgage payments yeah. and all that. I know LL is very proud of the fact that his father-in-law loves the fact that his daughter lives in a big old <laughs> ten thousand square foot house out there. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm happy for him, but I think both of them are better actors and can do some better work. Uh, but you know what? NCIS ride that pony until it uh, till it it, it it dies. I I say. Yeah, O'Donnell's uh, got about fifteen kids, so yeah, he should stay. Yeah, stay your ass at work. <laughs> and then and then in its fourth season is the latest one, NCIS New Orleans. NCIS New Orleans. Who knew? Uh, wasn't there wasn't there a show in New Orleans for a minute that yep. Cool J was in, or uh, somebody else was in? Yeah, somebody was. In, uh, it was Gary Sinise, I think. Uh, maybe that was the one. Was that that's a CSI. See you there. You can't even do it. Can't even because there was one with Lawrence Fishburne and 
I mean, well, anyway, uh, so Scott Bakula uh, stars in this because Scott Bakula has always got to be on a TV show, and, uh, he, can, and he can do that Louisiana accent. Yeah, you know, like Scott, I like Scott Bakula, but he's but he's been on TV shows for for thirty five oh, years. Quantum Leap, you know, Bridget was in Quantum Leap. I didn't know played that. Anita Hill in Quantum. Oh, that's right, Leap. I did know that actually. Nineteen ninety five. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, anyway, lots of stuff on this. I love Scott Bakula, but you know, it does. It's not substantially <laughs> different from the others. And then the last one uh, is NCIS Criminal Minds. I'm sorry. Just criminal minds. <laughs> uh, got carried away there. It, it certainly feels like it. Uh, criminal minds in season thirteen. Another another part of the the CBS uh, Empire. And of course, this is you know ba- this is just profilers. But it's pretty much the same deal. Uh, Joe Montana. He's been off the market for a while too. All these great actors just doing TV. But you know what? Ride it. Just keep riding it. Uh, a lot of great actors in here. But really, you watch this for Joe Montana because he's just always great. And uh, there's not a whole lot of great profiling going on here anymore. It's just procedural stuff. It's yeah. the same as the NCIS shows. Well, it's all it's all just uh, yeah, the, 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 all the, the, the reductions of the sort of science now yep. is all they really do. And then they stand around and tell you things <laughs> that you just it's not know. Columbo. You do, I'm sorry. No. Give me. Any episode of Columbo, or or and I won't even uh, the, the the cowboy on the horse, Dennis Weaver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah anyone, uh, uh, give me uh, any McLeod. Uh, McLeod, give me yeah. any episode of McLeod or C- uh, Columbo will crush. Yeah. Any episode of any one of those shows. Mannix. Mannix. Give me a Mannix. You know. Kojak. You know, and, and, and just, just forget about it. You know? I just found out that someone I, I I don't know if even if you know him is a friend of Sh- Henry Sheehan's that met through Film Week mm. who who you know he teaches at a college teaches graphic design and stuff. Just found out he lives in the same building with Paul Michael Glazier. Go oh, get the hell out. Paul I Michael. asked him, I said, does he pull the Torino into the parking structure? <laughs> that orange Torino. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that was I'm very exciting. But I'm sorry, you know, I'm better gonna go, stuff. I'm going to go stalk that building. Better stuff, dude, yeah. better stuff. Um, Blind Spot, which falls into the same, uh, you know, pocket of the show sure. that we've been talking about. Yeah. Third complete season here. Of course, this is the show about the, uh, the young woman who shows up out of nowhere. Her whole body is... Covered in these bioluminescent uh, tattoos, yeah. Uh, which over the course of the first two seasons, uh, they are sort of uh, decoding and is leading them to this, that, and the other thing. Yep. Uh, third season, they figure out what the hell's going on with the tattoo, mm-hmm. right? So they, so they, so they answer the central question of the series. This is what's up with the tattoos. This is yep. what they mean. This is what they tell us. And this is where th- you know what series is over. Yeah. But they don't know it. <laughs> so they keep making more series. And I get it. Everybody wants to make yeah. more money. But, dude, I really wish that they would uh, – more. See, a lot of these series would be better, yep. the money notwithstanding. I get yep. the money. But the series would be better if they would come in knowing where they want to end. I agree. And then they could cut a blazing straight path. Which Lost did not do. Did not do. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. Uh, and thus you end up with these sort of – anyway, Blind Spot would fall into that uh, category for me. Uh, th- it does include never before seen uh, uh, deleted scenes and the gag reel and all kinds of other stuff. Interesting that that uh, all kinds. Of, I would have never thought, with, given the schedules of television, particularly yeah. network television, that you would end up with a whole lot of deleted scenes. No, you wouldn't but think so, right? No, because these things were, they used to be timed out, man. Yeah. Uh, very, very particular. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a very interesting uh, second season of Hostages here. This is an is- Israeli show that I guarantee you. Yeah. I guarantee you it's going to be remade into an American series at some point, just like uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, Showtime thing. Oh, uh, 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 the one set in uh, uh, the, the, uh, the 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 the, the, the na- national security thing. Uh, 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 oh, I know uh, the one you're uh, talking about. Home Homeland. Homeland. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, which uh, was a German show, I think, or something. It was like Israeli. That. I think it's, it's, Homeland, oh, that was Israeli. Yes, yeah, Israeli. Homeland was Israeli. So just like Homeland, we're going to get hostages at some point. I guarantee you, because it's a really good show, but it won't be as good as the original. Uh, this is in Hebrew and English. This is the second season. It's a, it's a really sharp show. 
And uh, as you might judge from the uh, title of the show, it is about hostages and hostage negotiation and SWAT teams and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And um, it's really interesting. It's super psychological, more so than Criminal Minds, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Uh, and uh, it, it really, really well-developed characters. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and the fact that it takes place in Israel gives it this added sort of uh, sense of heft and jeopardy and the regional issues. It's really a fascinating show. Uh, so look for, uh, you know, I wouldn't say watch it right now because it's as good as you're ever going to see this show, but it will, it will be remade here at some point. Uh, for sure, for sure. Third complete season of Lucifer. I am a fan of Luc- Lucifer. I watch Lucifer. I'll just say it right here, <laughs> uh, right now, you know, based on the series of books by, um, I think it was Neil, it was Neil Gaiman. I guess it was Neil Gaiman. Uh, but sort of created for, um, uh, for pop television. And I got to tell you, it's a lot of fun. Lucifer, of course, is the story of actual Lucifer, fallen angel. He's here in Los Angeles where he runs a nightclub and is a, a, a charismatically charming guy who's engaged in all of the things that Lucifer. But the notion in the series, in, in the series Lucifer, the books in the, in the television series, is that Lucifer is actually a cool guy and that it's God uh, who has the bad attitude. Uh, uh, that Lucifer isn't remotely evil at all and that it's God. That'll play well in the Deep South. Uh, yeah, you know, who makes him punish people for things that, frankly, Lucifer, you, you wouldn't mind at all. Uh, it's, a, it's really, really a funny series, uh, very sexy. Uh, with a neat cast, it went away, and it was, and they and they they held one of those campaigns to bring it back. I don't know if that campaign was successful or not. This is the third complete season, might be the last, so you know, uh, you might want to get it. Yeah, I hear that. And uh, then last of the TV before we get into some classic movies and wrap this out, uh, season five from Cinemax, the series Strike Back. This is on Blu-ray, and uh, as long as we're talking about you know SWAT type stuff. Uh, the thing that Cinemax tried to do was say we're not Showtime, we're not HBO, so we're going to be a little bit more kind of action-oriented, but we're going to be tougher than what you, you get on CBS. Mm-hmm. So you get this uh, commando show, Strike Back, which isn't bad. I don't think it's it's anything it, – it, it doesn't mean to be anything other than just straight-up action. The plots aren't particularly interesting, and, uh, you know, the characters aren't – I mean, the acting is pretty wooden. But you know what? It's It's got great sound. This is still uh, part of HBO and Ultraviolet, so that hasn't made the transition over to uh, to uh, movies anywhere yet. Not quite sure why, but uh, just the same. Uh, y- there's a lot to enjoy in this, and I, I can't, you know, again, I can't recommend it as an action show, but the the, the sound, the picture, the ac- uh, as a dramatic show, the sound, the picture, the picture, the action, all that is really really good. Uh, so quickly getting into some classic films, we've got a wonderful, wonderful bunch of uh, studio classics from Kino, plus one that's an interesting little anomaly. But the studio classic stuff from Kino is a is a great suite this month. Uh, movies that uh, if you you know you came out of the '80s and '90s, you probably forgot that a lot of these movies existed, and they are really, really worth rediscovering. Uh, Daryl Hannah, Keith Carradine, Moira Kelly, and Vincent Spano oh, in wow. The Tie That Binds. Yeah. You remember this? Oh, yeah. Uh, Wesley Strick, who, you know, was and still is kind of a big deal screenwriter, wrote a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff, uh, including the, uh, the Martin Scorsese version of um, Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, he directed this, The Tie That Binds, which is very much a, uh, you know, I- again, it's, it's from the producers of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's the tagline here because they want you to understand this is another one of those kinds of movies. And it is. It's like a little bit Cape Fear, a little Hand the Rocks the Cradle, stalkery, thrillery. It's, uh, but it's, it's good. It's solid, and Daryl Hannah's terrific. Uh, the Day After, which we all remember, was set all kinds of crazy records on television. Nicholas Meyer directed the, uh, the uh, atomic bomb television movie yeah. that, uh, 
that scared the daylight. It was daylights. quite a thing. It was quite a. It was a serious television thing. television production. It's funny looking back on it how it freaked everybody out. Uh, but uh, you know, it's still 1983. It was it was a it was a legendary moment in television. And uh, that's before a lot the of wall it, came down, dude. A lot of it was hype. That's true. Yeah. It was before the wall, so a lot of it was hype. But it was um, it's a moment in television, and it's it's terribly well done. Uh, especially for TV movies of that time, John Lithgow and uh, Joe Beth Williams, Jason Robards, really, really good cast. Also, The Inkwell, Matty Rich, who yeah. went to just disappeared. Uh, but Matty Rich was a was a thing for a moment. Yeah, this is the movie that introduced Lorenz Tate, and uh, this was kind of in that like we were talking about earlier. Spike sort of opened the door for yeah. a lot of, a lot of black filmmakers. And Matty, Matty, was Matty and Spike had a, had a funky little moment too. They it's, did. It's straight, Matty's movie was uh, straight out of Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, was the was the big movie that yeah. sort of launched him, and, and, it, it, and him, this was his this was his follow up, and that was the that was the studio follow up, and uh, that did not do did well, not do well, and Spike had a lot of attitudey kind of stuff. I did the junket for that one too. I remember, I, you know, the thing is, the Inkwell is really really well intended as a kind of a coming of age film. It's yeah. very sweet. It's about the sort of black bourgeois, and the Inkwell is, was the sort of vacation spot in like South Carolina right. or something like that, where the sort of black and it was just this little little it's little a coming lightish of age com- film. comedy with yeah. a coming of age film. It's just you not know, very well made. It's just not very. Mad- he didn't yeah. master his craft. Not yet, you know, because yeah. uh, Straight Out of Brooklyn. And if you look at Straight Out of Brooklyn now, it's not all that well made. But it was the subject matter. Well, and the fact that he raised money to make yeah. the movie by yeah. going around the neighborhood and asking people for investment. Yeah. yeah. It was more as a producer that he excelled in getting that movie made. The, the other filmmaker, the other two, John Singleton, of course, yeah. and then there and then there was Charles Lane, who made that beautiful little oh, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, sidewalk, uh, sidewalk story. Sort of Which Captain is on Blu-ray. And Lane is yeah. amazing. Now he was an ex- he had skills and should oh. have had a larger career. Yeah. Yeah. But, but he's a, but he's a very experimental guy, you know. Yeah. He's he's more in the vein of Charles Vernon. Who we talked very about much so. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis in Color of Night by Richard Rush. This film is legendarily terrible. Oh man, but I did the junket for that too, dude. This is all home. This is all home week for me. So Richard Rush, Richard Rush, who did the Stunt Man and a lot of other great movies. Richard Rush. Did is he a good have the heart attack on that or this? I think it was the Stunt Man. It's the Stunt Man because Peter O'Toole drove him crazy. Yeah. But uh, it, here's the thing. This is a terrible movie with an amazingly funny and yet somehow strangely mm. n- kind of sexy uh, the thing, pool The whole, the whole pool thing with thing. Jane, uh, Jane March, right? Yeah, Jane March. That and whole pool yeah. bit. Anyway, yeah, so it's uh, this movie was ripped. But you know what? When you look at it in hindsight, it kind of is like a – it's almost like the trashy Joe Esterhaus movie that Joe oh, yeah. Esterhaus didn't write. Uh, uh, and, 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 and it lives – first of all, there were several of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It, would, it wouldn't yeah. by itself. No. Uh, out there being bad and sort of uh, sort of hyper-sexy yep. and, and all that kind of stuff. Some of them became so, legend. Uh, this one became legend for a bad reason. There's a director's cut on here. There's a director's cut that's 20 minutes longer. Oh, my goodness. It's not better. Uh, but it's different, and Richard Rush does the commentary on the director's cut. This is my cut, and it really took the movie away from me. And then uh, Matthew Chapman, who wrote it, does the commentary on the on the uh, theatrical cut. Uh, I would say if you've got like four and a half hours to blow, <laughs> watch, them all. watch it all. More than that, just watch uh, eight hours. Watch the movies first, back to back, and then listen to, to the commentaries. If you can spend all day and you don't mind wasting it on uh, Color of Night, I kind of would recommend you do. Yeah. Uh, Cradle Will Rock no. is, a, is a Tim Robbins-directed movie that unfortunately didn't really get the attention it deserved. Uh, it kind of sort of ended Tim Robbins' directing career in a lot of ways, too. This takes place in the 1930s, and it all centers around a... 
a loosely based uh, series of factual. Uh, well, how do I put it? it, it Orson Welles, Orson Diego Wells, Rivera, the guy who wrote it. What was his name? Mark, Mark, Chat, Mark. The, the guy who wrote the play. There's an actual yeah. play called Cradle Will Rock. Yes, and and it's it's it. There's a moment in the 1930s that involves all of these people and Orson Welles and his stage troupe. Do, during Orson the WPA and, yes. and when the government was financing Before all these Before Welles became a yeah. filmmaker, when he was still you know a, a theater guy. And uh, you know, Diego Don Houseman, all these people are involved. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting tapestry uh, of a particular moment. And what I really love about this, I still the thing I love most about this is a credit at the end of the film that says uh, something to the effect of "edited on old-fashioned movie <laughs> equipment." <laughs> they just it, kind of and it's funny. You, know, you, you know, and I, you and I screened that movie the same yeah. together, whatever yep. year that was. Yeah. Uh, Hope Springs with Colin Firth, Heather Graham, Mini Driver. This is just a perfectly sweet uh, romantic comedy that uh, it's not great. It's directed by Mark Herman, whom I've always thought a great deal of. He's just a really good director of uh, romantic comedies. Doesn't overstay its welcome. Uh, Mary Steenburgen is is a nice supporting part. Oliver Platt is funny as always. And uh, you know what? Go for it. I mean, uh, you know, Mark Herman wrote me a very, very nice letter, too, after I gave a good review to Blame It on the Bellboy. Yeah. And uh, I've never forgotten that, and I think he's I think he deserves uh, a better career. Uh, the remake of Born Yesterday with Melanie Griffith, John Goodman, and Don Johnson. Not, not as the good si- as the uh, 19, no. Yeah. no, not as good as the original, but it's got its moments. Uh, Luis Mandoki, who went on to do a lot of TV, uh, was the director of this. Uh, and, you know, I kind of look at this and I think I was maybe a little too hard on that movie in the 90s because I kind of wish they had movies like that again today. Mm. Uh, Alex Cox, talking about uh, <laughs> anachronistic, enigmatic, uh, oddball filmmakers. Uh, Straight to Hell, one of those Alex Cox movies that is just almost impossible to describe. Uh, this one's from 1987, In the Wake of Repo Man. And uh, they did a 2K restoration on this, and I don't... I, I kind of almost can't tell because Cox shoots his movies so gritty. You know, it's like, did they, is it supposed to look like this? Yeah. In any case, uh, Straight to Hell is kind of like, uh, there's a, it's, it's almost like his version of Pulp Fiction in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, but it's, it, you know, some, some guys, some, some uh, bandits bury some, uh, some of their loot. And uh, it, then it gets into kind of this weird out in the middle of the desert sort of repo man thing. And Jim Jarmusch shows up with a weird cameo. And, you know, it's just it's all it's all very just weird. You can make movies like that at one time. You yeah, can make them. Not today. No. Uh, so here's another interesting thing. In 1984, there were two movies that were made. They were almost identical and yet one of them was very schmaltzy and melodramatic and romantic, and the other one was tough and gritty. But they're identical stories. It's really weird. One was The River mm-hmm. with Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek, uh, directed by Mark Rydell. And the other one, the gritty one, was Country, directed by Richard Pierce with Jessica Lang and Sam Shepard. Yeah. If you want to really understand the plight of the farmers in the yeah. 1980s and what they went through in terms of losing, you know, losing their mortgages. The farm aid period. The farm aid period, right? Um, the one that really captures that is not the one with the John Williams score, which yeah. is The River. Uh, it's this movie, Country. Sam, Sam Shepard, Jessica Lange just absolutely tear your heart out. It is so, so tough to watch what they go through in this movie. It's a good movie. And uh, film historian Lee Gammon does a really, really good audio commentary on this. And uh, then the last two, we've got A Thousand Acres, also with Jessica Lange and Michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. uh, also with Colin Firth, Keith Carradine, Jason Robards, all people we've already talked about today. Uh, and uh, this was directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, who is the wife of P.J. Hogan. They are both directors. P.J. Hogan, of course, does funny movies like 
uh, Muriel's Wedding and Jocelyn Morehouse does stuff like uh, you know, basically a thousand acres. And um, uh, this is not as good of a movie as I remembered, actually. I thought I liked it a lot more, and watching it again, it kind of uh, wanes a little bit. But watching Jessica Lange and Michelle Pfeiffer makes it all worth it. They are both absolutely terrific. Um, it's, the, it's the script by Laura Jones that I kind of doesn't quite work so well for me anymore. Uh, and maybe it's the source material. Jane Smiley wrote the, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, which kind of can't really be adapted. And then lastly, Deep Rising with Treat Williams and oh Famke Janssen. Another junk of that. Yeah. They did kind of a special edition for this one. Uh, it's got a sleeve and a ton of extras on here. Uh, you know, interviews with everybody, mostly special effects people. But um, you know what? It's uh, Stephen Summers, who, of course, would go on to do The, the, the Mummy and, uh, yeah. you know, Van Helsing and stuff like that, uh, directed it. Stephen Summers, my wife, also worked with him on a, on a film called Gunman. But uh, he wrote and directed this, and it really is an artifact of another era. They don't make movies like this. This is a 1990s sci-fi action movie with all of its kind of cheesy, blockbustery schmaltz intact, and it uh, doesn't really work as a monster movie. It's totally a ripoff of, uh, of just about everything else that preceded it, you know, aliens and you know, yeah. fill in the blanks. But uh, I don't know. There's a weird, strange kind of uh, enjoyable cheesiness to it. Uh, I got a couple here that I will... Take a stab at, including yep. Autumn in New York, Richard Gere, and Winona Ryder in a film yep. directed by Joan Chen. One of three oh, films yeah. directed by Joan Chen. The only feature she did, she did a couple of shorts. I, you know, I, I rather, I rather enjoyed this movie. It's about just a sort of aging playboy who falls in love with a young girl, as aging playboys are wont to do. But she turns out to be terminally ill, so it lives in that sort of. Um, uh, 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 what's the Ryan O'Neill and, and, and Ali McGraw? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That space, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, sort of deeply romantic, a little bit small. Love story, a love story. Thank you. And yeah. uh, but you know, and and it would, would, with shades of indecent exposure, you know, Robert Redford and and all that. But but it's just you know, it's sincere, and I rather yeah. liked it. And uh, and I think Joan Chin should have made, should have directed more movies. Personally. She should have for sure, absolutely. <laughs> she her first film was uh, uh, Shu with the Scent Down yeah, Girl, yeah. which she's shot in China with. Without approval of the authorities, which was a hell of a thing to do. Yeah. Oh man, oh, uh, Joan suffered uh, in some ways. Uh, you know, of course, Joan was in uh, was in um, Lust Caution and uh, and uh, famously in uh, Twin Peaks on television. Yeah, all that kind of. Her problem, too beautiful. And then we got a trio of uh, criterions here: uh, the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, uh, Edward J. Olmos, uh, Edward James Olmos, starring for director Robert M. Young. Uh, a really an extraordinary landmark film from 1982. Beautiful restoration 2K on this. Uh, a, a bunch of really, really good extras. Uh, you know, the usual criterion thing. Ballad of Gregorio Cortez really kind of broke... Um, it broke through a barrier that had prevented a lot yeah. of Latino actors and Latino filmmakers who still have a hard time, but it really opened a door in a way, uh, especially so it said, you know, this is not necessarily a foreign film phenomenon. There are American filmmakers who, who uh, you know, are, this is part of our culture, too, part of our film culture. Mm -hmm. uh, the original uh, Ernst Lubitsch, Heaven Can Wait, not to be confused with the Warren Beatty film. This is from 1943. Donna Michi has just never been more charming. Gene Tierney never been more beautiful. And Ernst Lubitsch's uh, direction has never been more, uh, more meticulous. Um, wonderful conversation on here uh, from 2005 between Molly Haskell and Andrew Saris, two of the great film critics of all time. And a 1982 episode of Creativity with Bill Moyers, uh, looking into the uh, the life of uh, screenwriter Samu uh, Samson Rafelson. Uh, this is just an absolutely terrific classic. And then the last one, Smithereens, 
uh, Susan Seidelman's uh, kind of amazing landmark 1982 film, which was one of the first movies of the 80s yeah. to, to break through for a lot of female directors. Susan Seidelman was one of those. And then she went on to do, you know, Desperately Seeking Susan, Susan and yeah. kind of, kind of, which was also a thing, but it sort of, it wasn't Smithereens. You know, Smithereens has a lot yeah, of... Yeah, well, Desperately, uh, Madonna was the thing about Desperately yeah, Seeking Susan. Yeah. yeah, but Smithereens really has a lot of, lot of cool grit and the way, the way that they, you know, it visualize New York. It just it captured a moment, and it's just it's it's just you know it was it was a big deal at Cannes, and it really captured a moment and a style, and it just broke a it broke a, a ceiling for for, for women. Uh, yeah, uh, neat stuff. Uh, two left over here. Crazy Six, neat movie that I really like. Rob Lowe, Burt Reynolds, Ice T. Uh, back when, before we started playing cops <laughs> on yeah. television, yeah. <laughs> and Mario Van Peebles in an Howard Puyin film. It's, it's it's this is kind of a neat movie. Dark little gritty movie set in Eastern Europe. You got this kid. Uh, played by Rob Lowe, they call him Crazy Six because he's the sixth child in this uh, notorious drug family. He's crazy for drugs, and it's all about the way uh, that part of uh, Eastern Europe is sort of falling apart, and everything is crumbling, and the drug crate, uh, uh, trade is just going completely uh, insane. And these families, uh, these mafia families, are fighting over this trade. Uh, I got to tell you, this is some good gritty Burt Reynolds. This is some good gritty Ice T, and this is some damn good Rob Lowe before he sort of became you know handsome television guy. Uh, it was like post. He's a, he's it's a handsome television he's guy. Handsome now. Television That's guy all now. he is. It was, yeah. you know, it's post. It's post young Rob Lowe, but pre handsome television Rob Lowe. And then we have from 1975 a film that nowadays they call The Boss. Yep. Or just That's not boss. what it was called then. That's not what it was called in 1995. It was called Boss N I G G E R Hard R. Right. 1974 75 when this film yep. came out, and it was a great name and 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 the correct name. And and, uh, and Fred Williamson does not like that they've released the, this movie the, with the new title. With the he new is title, don't very like upfront. Fred, Fred the Hammer Williamson uh, yeah. played 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 the guy in this movie. And if you think about uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django, um, a wholly and completely influenced as much by any Django film by this movie. Yeah. By Fred Williamson in this movie. When you're watching Django, you're really watching very, very this true. movie right here. Anyway, it's about a guy, a former slave, uh, who uh, you know stops being a slave, gets a gun and a hat, uh, and becomes the boss. That's it. Uh, it is. This is a really subversive classic from the black exploitation era, yeah. and I love this movie. And the thing is, Fred Williamson is such an interesting guy because. He he insists, and they keep the title, the original title, on the movie itself. It's yeah. just not on the packaging. Yeah. But uh, he wanted to reclaim that word. Yeah. He wanted to undermine that word. He wanted to subvert it. And, and uh, you know, I think we know today that he has he has failed to do so. Yeah. But but at the time, he was you know here's the here's the great story that Fred Williamson told me, and it's and it's and it pertains to everything we've talked about today with Spike Lee and oh, it and really does. It does. Fred Williamson was you know we're talking about a guy who was a, a had been a football player. And became uh, a movie actor, and became a movie director, and a movie producer. Mm -hmm. And he went to the. And when he was making his own movies, producing his own movies, uh, he was determined to not basically be at the mercy of anybody else. And mm -hmm. he was one of the. F he was one of the first to say, "I'm going to go independent." Rudy Ray Moore was Rudy, another yeah, one of the Dolomite films. Yeah. And and Fred Williamson, he told me I interviewed him for Original Gangsters, which he produced and, and acted in, pulled everybody back together. And he said he went to the Cannes Film Festival one year with all of his movies, and he set up shop in a little booth. Uh, and, uh, you know, he couldn't afford to, to get the big hotel suites like the bigger companies, and people kept coming and just saying, how much you want for your movies? Do you realize uh, this, that, and the other thing? He goes, you know, the, these movies, they, they star you. I mean, you know, black actors and black movies, they don't, they don't really sell in mm -hmm, Europe, and they mm -hmm. tried to talk him the down. The old trope. The old trope, and they tried to talk him down, and Fred Williamson said, yeah, I don't think so. I know <laughs> what my movies are worth. Yeah. I know how they play. 
but but uh, th- thanks for asking. Yeah. And he stood his ground, and he said the whole festival time, nobody bought a single movie until two days before the end of the festival. They all came back and paid him what he was asking for. Because because he stood his ground. And, and he it's an stood his ground. Thing. So uh, it actually plays um, Black Klansman, for instance. Yeah. So this movie that they changed the name of. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, so. You watch Black Klansmen, and not unlike Django, the word that we insist on calling the N-word uh, is mm. in that movie about 400 times, Black Klansmen. Yeah. Except that here's the thing, and you know, and, and I know that Spike knows this, mm. and sometimes the thing that Quentin doesn't always get right. right. When you watch Black Klansmen, the word that we insist on calling the N-word, which yeah. is the word that shows up in a lot of hip-hop music, yeah. N-I-G-G-A, or however yeah. you want to spell it, that word never is spoken in Black Klansmen, not once, not ever. Everybody who says... That word yes. is saying N I G G E R, 1972, R-R. Colorado Street. R-R. Yeah. And Spike knows that. No yeah. one, because I, I heard someone the other day, oh, you know, how, what about, and Spike's like, you're not listening. Yeah. So listen, go back and listen to the movie again. Yeah. Black folks know that these are not the same words. That's right. And they, one of them has a whole lot of meanings, and uh, depending on who you are, you can yeah. use it or not use it. The other one, E R, only has the one meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a and, it, and, it, and it's and it's thing that Fred Williamson knows, that Spike knows, and that you know I re- I wish that the greater culture yeah would get to that. know. And I've, it's, a, it's a thing I've been talking about. Anyway, uh, well, cool it's it is. So I uh, I'm a huge Fred Williamson fan. And speaking of you know three the hard way, yeah, that is a classic from the era. That is as long as Black Klansman is out there, yeah. maybe that'll finally come out because that has never been get released. Get out of here. Have no never been on DVD. Never been on Blu-ray. Three the hard way. Uh, for those who don't know, I mean, it's you know, it's it's Jim Brown yeah. uh, and and Jim Kelly are the other ones in that one, and uh, it has a whole kind of KKK uh, subplot to it. Fame, yeah. It's uh, it it would be a good time to, to resurrect that, and uh, heck, get Spike to even do an intro and a commentary if he wants to. Resurrect that in a bunch of ways. Actually. Yeah. Now Gordon Parks Jr. Yep. Yep. All right. All right, with that, we are done this week and uh, and for next week. And then we'll be back uh, the week after and uh, try to get back in gear and wish me well. Kindergarten uh, begins. <laughs> Actually, we'll give you a little bit more time in your day. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.